the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour, formerly podcast care of cooper cherry but changing it up a little bit uh for, to be more seo friendly but um we're, we're going extremely fast today because we're looking at accelerationism um, i'm doing this with with jack collis a former grad student at lbj school studying economics ecology currently working on his 12 episode first season of a youtube series on philosophy politics and economics uh, with the first initial episode set to drop on May Day. Uh, yeah. Hi. Good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be shy. Don't yeah. Be shy. Um, Cooper messaged me about a couple months ago on Twitter, uh, and uh, it's been a fast friendship. Yeah. So, like I said, we're delving into accelerationism, extremely, I think, misunderstood body of thought, and... Uh, what pieces did we look at? We looked at acid communism. Yeah, so the uh, the main pieces we looked at were Meltdown, uh, kind of Nick Land's 1992 seminal uh, essay that kind of, I don't know if it's fair to call it an essay. It's honestly, I kind of view it as epic poetry uh, because Land is like, he can play fast and loose with facts and often just, you know, he's painting a very vivid picture of... Uh, the future of technology, artificial intelligence. Uh, we also read Mark Fisher's Acid Communism, which is kind of an antithesis, I think, to Meltdown. It kind of examines the way that accelerationism has stalled out, the acceleration of info time, uh, things like that. And then we read the Manifesto for an Accelerationist Politics, which is by Alex Williams and Nick Cernicek, uh, two um, British I guess, kind of protégés of Mark Fisher, who kind of paint a way forward for the left in an accelerationist era. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think I really enjoyed the readings quite a bit. I, I think maybe Meltdown probably the most just because it, I don't know, it, it felt like something I would write, Yeah, which was a little bit scary. It's, uh, and... it's weird. Um, yeah, he definitely is not... An easy read the first time through. He, oh, I think he, I thought it was great. I really? Loved, yeah, I loved it. That's exactly the kind of like bombast and like I definitely think shit that I enjoy. He's really uh, almost in a way that no no one else besides maybe Manuel Delanda is. He's definitely a spiritual successor to Deleuze and Guattari, and you can definitely see their influence come through a lot in that. Um, definitely a creative misreading. I think people have described Meltdown before. He like kind of. <laughs> plays fast and loose with Deleuze and Guattari's concept of deterritorialization. Um, and yeah, he's he's a pretty fascinating writer. Uh, unfortunately, 
no longer on the uh, good side. He's, uh, I think, he's our Anakin Skywalker. He is, yeah. <laughs> um, now a fallen uh, boomer uh, prophet <laughs> who posts about eugenics and IQ and yeah, <laughs> he's kind of you know self-acknowledged boomer as well. Yeah, <laughs> sadly. Um, but yeah, the young land was definitely, I think. Um, a very challenging, very interesting writer who kind of called the left on its bullshit, I think, um, in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, it kind of seemed like, you know, we were definitely on the back foot. Uh, it seemed like there was no future for the left, almost. Um, and he kind of, I, I don't think Land has ever really considered himself a true leftist. A lot of his kind of writing targets the what he views as the academic left which is kind of forsaken a lot of marxist central ideas most notably the idea that um you know socialism should be about a brighter technological future that uses the best uh of what capitalism has produced to to kind of drive us into a brave new world i guess you could say yeah so in terms of and am I not mistaken am I mistaken in saying that Land was Fisher's like mentor at, at yeah, one time? Yeah, so um the whole like milieu of like Land and Fisher, they came out of the University of Warwick uh in the UK in the nineties, um, kind of formed this unofficial philosophy department called the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit or the CCRU. Uh, and the CCRU was very interested in studying like the emerging internet. Um, they kind of are mu- very multidisciplinary. Uh, they combine, you know, research from molecular biology to nanotechnology, neuroscience. Um, they definitely copped a lot of their ideas from, I think, a robust body of sci-fi literature like uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer. I think that uh, Land's meltdown must have somehow influenced the Matrix because it's pretty much, you know, they are both exploring the way that capital acts with a mind of its own, almost. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of what I got from it is this idea of, and I'm perhaps reading a little bit into this, but this is kind of the dynamic that I've been thinking about a lot is capitalism as this sort of already is this very immersive cybernetic system um, that has really territorialized so much of the globe and at such a speed with emerging like mobile internet iPhones, smartphones etc etc and so that it's like at this point it's been it's reached a, a point of development to where it's kind of operating it has its own sort of emergent behaviors yeah, definitely. Largely, that it's kind of disconnected from even like a, you might say like the control of the bourgeoisie or like yeah. the capitalist class even. And I think uh, a lot of, you know, Land's point, which he builds on uh, from this like single quote from Anti-Oedipus uh, by Deleuze and Guattari, where they talk about um, the free trade system and quote Marx, uh, who talked about how the free trade system was, in his view, a positive development over, for example, like the protectionism, mercantilism 
high tariffs and whatnot, uh, that, whatnot that kind of defined the trading system of his time. He kind of viewed free trade as a positive development because it broke down such things as like, you know, national like borders, borders, stuff, yeah. borders. Um, it kind of led to the transmission of people across, uh, beginning in the 1800s, you know, you have these massive waves of massive flows of people uh, migrating to the U.S. and to other kind of centers of capital uh, where, you know, exciting things started to happen. And uh, Land, in one of his, like, earliest kind of most far-left works, uh, it's called Kant, Capital, and the Prohibition of Incest. He talks about how, um, for example, capitalism has led to greater freedom for women in the sense that it kind of dissolved the patriarchal relationships of the feudal household and peasant you know, agricultural dynamics where the woman was basically a uh, child rearer, baby raiser, uh, cook, chef, servant. Uh, and with the advent of, you know, capitalism in the first world, they start to get suffrage. They have the opportunity to enter the workforce, live on their own. Uh, it kind of, yeah, con capital and the prohibition of incest, if you compare it to Land's current work is like night and day. It's, it's, revolutionary and it's like feminism and it's just general it's it's about the colonial dynamics of uh the capitalist world system and it's just it's fascinating i mean it really <laughs> highlights how far he's fallen yeah on that note let's uh maybe delve into just kind of discussing what acceleration is from sort of a broad perspective and kind of maybe dispel some of the mythologies about it yeah so I guess um, there's kind of like Vox recently published this like briefer on accelerationism. Oh, yeah. I think even Land was like, was like commenti- commenting on that. Yeah, like it's kind of, I think Zizek kind of advanced this idea that uh, kind of conflates accelerationism with the immiseration thesis, which is like kind of from Marx's earliest, most humanist works before he got really into studying capital as a di- dynamic. And the immiseration thesis is basically like, things have to get worse before they get better. Uh, the more and more, uh, you know, capitalism dissolves the family, social relations, uh, basically the entirety of what we have come to know know as the human socius. Yeah. Maybe basically, the previous um, prior paradigm, like you can see even that erosion, like in our lifetimes, I think. Yeah, for sure. But I think that the immiseration theory, thesis is kind of, a little, I think it's been debunked over time. Uh, I think, you know, we've proven as a, uh, we're too adaptable, exploitable as a species. Yeah, exactly. that, you know, we're pretty much able to take, uh, any amount of abuse without actually, you know, revolting. Uh, well, without necessarily like it, I think the, yeah, the teleological aspect of conditions being shitty. So I think the word accelerationism has been misused a lot in to mean that, to mean the immiseration thesis and kind of the idea that, uh, you know, yeah, things get worse before they get better. Uh, accelerationism is kind of both a philosophy of how time operates under capitalism. Um, That's really interesting. And it's also a political praxis. So... As far as a uh, philosophy of time, Land describes it as the time structure of capital accumulation, basically meaning that, uh, you know, things are just, they feel like they're happening faster. Like if you look at the news, uh, you see the 
uh, descent of the West into fascism, uh, climate collapse. We're getting such an influx of uh, information that seems to be moving at a faster and faster rate. And that really describes, uh, you know, a lot of the history of capitalism. Uh, if you like Land gives this really interesting example in his interview with Justin Murphy, um, where he talks about conceivable magnitudes. So he basically uses math as an example of how things have accelerated from the ancient era to the modern era. So like back in ancient Rome, the highest number was M, which is a thousand, because you would never really have to count past a thousand to describe, you know, legions or the amount of gold in the coffers of Rome or, uh, I don't know, the number of plants they knew. Like thousand was really all they had. When you get to the, you know, scientific revolution of the Renaissance, you start to see the number like million appear. And Land uh, specifically notes like the arrival of Arabic numerals, especially zero, which we didn't really have a concept for in the West, as kind of the takeoff point for this like massive acceleration. So that's like two thousand years of Roman, two thousand plus years of Roman numerals being the dominant system of numerology, and then you get Arabic numerals. And now today, in the twentieth uh, and twenty-first century, we measure things in billions, trillions, quadrillions. That when that whether that be the money supply or uh, the number of stars in the galaxy, particles, what have you. So you really see this kind of exponential graph moving upwards. Uh, and that applies as well to, you know, things like the economy, uh, population, uh, once again, money supply, uh, capital accumulation. It kind of takes this exponential, you know... Hockey stick sort of yeah. distribution. Um and I think that's partially an illusion based on where we are in human history. I think that it's actually more realistic to look at most of these things as the logistic curve, where it's kind of like an S shape, you know, uh, things kind of are flat for a while. They rocket up in a massive kind of um, exponential growth and then level off. That especially is true of population. And I think we are seeing that happen with the stagnation of things like economic growth and technological productivity, uh, where it's not really accurate to say that things are accelerating anymore. Uh, and the last 50 years especially have been de defined by, I think, stagnation, especially when it comes to the economy. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's one view of acceleration as kind of a ontological way to describe how time functions under capitalism. And the other uh, aspect of it is as a political strategy, which is uh, aimed at kind of restarting that technological progress, which has kind of stalled out over the last 50 years. Um, this could be a good time to talk about what I call mainstream acceleration. Yeah. Uh, so like there's kind of a mainstream cultural sense of progress that I think we've been instilled with in education over the last 200 years, um, where we have this like liberal technocratic vision of progress as just like a linear kind of... Um, it's assumed, I think, as well, like that as yeah. we progress through history that 
Exactly. And and now conditions will get better, technology everything is moving in a positive towards a like there's a teleological element. Exactly. Yeah. There's like things are moving towards an end towards a, a future freer, freedom. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. I, I guess it's the Hegelian, you know, idea that uh human society through the development of consciousness is moving towards, you know, rationalization, uh greater freedom, greater knowledge of the world and of ourselves. Um and I think that's kind of has come to even in like not just in the liberal progress progressive worldview but also the marxist worldview you know we're progressing towards uh greater levels of economic equality and eventually towards communism a classless stateless society i think this idea of progress has really defined the conversation over the last two years and it makes sense because you know you look around and the world is changing so quickly uh so we have you know elon musk you know reaching for the stars and whatnot and you know he's we we have this vision of technological progress like we've got a new iphone every year and i think our modern vision is kind of illusory in the sense that you know a lot of this progress is uh temporary or entirely fake incrementally improving upon something like sort of a primary invention like a telephone right and we're just building incrementally on that idea but we're not really breaking ground as far as like the fundamental aspects of communication like the major from a standpoint at least to a degree of the last you know 20 30 years has been the internet but that and and like i mean smartphones are kind of like an extension of that but those are all kind of remixing previously existing technologies um and they're not you know creating the new yeah sort of the way that i think a lot of innovation now is surrounded by it's like app appetizing i'll call it mm-hmm. making air, previously existing services now absolutely like they're but now it's like the same service but now it's the transmission the of it or the infrastructure is where the innovation is it's not necessarily like the base service right because we've right think of a cab or or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, absolutely. that service like Uber, is... yeah. There's nothing fundamentally different about transport. Yeah. It's effectively the same. Like, we're still in eternal, you know, I mean, combustion lot... engines, right? But it's like the the mechanism for accessing that service yeah. is where the innovation, in quotes, lies. Yeah, exactly. And a number of different, like, you know, grocery shopping, all like all that shit mm-hmm. that is just getting put on apps and isn't think... really like... A, you're saying it's not like it's not real progress right it's just you know it's convenience and i think it really mostly serves to service capitalism and the way that uh we need to reproduce ourselves as laborers through you know getting places uh getting our we have less free time to do things like travel to uh commute to cook our own meals uh and they're all being replaced by apps which outservice these things to other workers in the gig economy. So I think that's just one of many examples of how this kind of progress is illusory. I think there are also there's a lot to be said about how the fact that most of these things are just rent seeking mechanisms. Oh, yeah. Like if you look at um, yeah. like the scooters that are all around Austin uh, where we're recording, uh, they're basically creating a single piece of capital, a scooter. And then charging an infinite amount of rent stretched over time. So it's not really, you know, yeah, they're not adding anything to the economy. They're just charging more rent. Right, and yeah, I think exactly. so much of the economy has been 
converted into rent seeking. Oh yeah, absolutely. And know. I think like that. I think the Uber example is speaks to that. Yeah, very clearly too, and really like offsetting a lot of the so much of the costs because there's no, you know these are also like 1099 employees so there's no oh, yeah, there's no yeah. benefits like all the costs of operation are pushed off onto the worker mm-hmm. and as everything else is like as more production has been shifted overseas now there's more demand for like there's still a need for income mm-hmm. but now that has to be filled through you know a second job or whatever because wages have been driven to the absolute bottom and the uh you know the labor unions have been hollowed out and yeah, there's essentially absolutely. all that sort of there's no like capitalism is just like running wild and not just that but like these also rec- represent pri- the privatization of services that used to be public goods you know you uber is a replacement for the fact that you know in a city like austin we have infinite sprawl we have no public transportation system whatever public transportation that does exist is you know heavily inefficient privatized uh it's just, you know, th- these are now replacements for public services. And I think we're even starting to see that in, you know, even more essentials like medicine and whatnot, you know, are going to be increasingly app-based kind of quasi-solutions that really are steps backwards almost. And I think, you know, there are other examples of illusory progress, like, you know, so much of capital in Silicon Valley is being sent to things like Theranos or Peloton or whatnot that are just like, Utter even, sca- and we work. We work. We work. Yeah, total scams. Just like you know, they are. They have glossy sheens. They're well designed. You know, the iPhone's a cool looking device, but it's really not like. I think David Graeber really uh, hammers this point home. Where are the flying cars? Where is space travel gone? You know, there's all these things that we associated with the future. You know. 2001 A Space Odyssey came out in nineteen, the late 1960s, 68, right? 67, yeah. somewhere in there. And we're probably just as far from that vision of the future yeah. as we were then. Yeah. I think, um, so I think the logistic function, you know, leveling off really does paint a picture of where we are now. I think what we view as the acceleration of technological progress, it's, it's currently hit a rut, and I think that rut is... Capitalism, which once was, as I said before, one of the most revolutionary, revolutionizing, progressive tendencies in the world and is now uh, kind of blocking those accelerative tendencies. Yeah, it's all all the innovations are sort of what is it, endemic or uh, not. They're not exo like, you know what I mean? It's not ter- it's not reaching out for anything beyond it's like kind of scavenging it's almost like fracking is a good metaphor it's like trying to find like all the easy the the very last remnants yeah they're like sucking out the little portions where wherever they're like rent i mean rent seeking really like you said that's the fucking new paradigm yeah capitalism i mean rent seeking and the debt economy i think are like the two major things driving uh capitalism into the ground uh as a social system that can you know sustain itself into the future but also as a method for innovation you know like we a lot of these you know technological advancements that we saw in like the golden era of keynesian post-war capitalism uh were fueled by high purchasing power among consumers who could, you know, spend discretionary income on TVs and, you know, 
phones and other gadgets that you know brought the world closer together it felt like uh, whereas today we're burdened by massive amounts of debt massive amounts of uh, we have to pay higher rents not only in housing but in to companies like health insurance firms and uh, I think that is what's driving down a lot of this innovation is we don't really have money to spend on new things uh, even though a lot of them have gotten cheaper there's not a lot of innovation and we're even seeing steps backwards in things like housing and medicine where uh, innovation has died out and it's yeah. now just a matter of like cons- consumer consumer items like non-essentials are getting cheaper getting cheaper but Whereas the essentials the essentials are medicine food housing all of those are skyrocketing, skyrocketing yeah and uh, I think it's it speaks to capitalism's priorities it always has to create new stuff uh you know new desires exactly yeah we can't just have an economy uh where we you know just produce food and medicine and you know that can't capitalism can't be built on the necessities yeah, it, it can't needs sustain to be built itself. on creating new desires everywhere we look what else you mentioned here there's uh climate change and the Jevons paradox. Okay, so yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess the other kind of like the way that everyone is looking forward these days is towards a green economy, uh, green capitalism. There's like a lot of hype and buzz about around, you know, technologies like Tesla, uh, things like um, solar power, things like that, Um, and you know, a lot of our policymakers are focusing on making more efficient. methods of using energy um but the problem with this is that like not only do they consume massive amounts of resources like you know the whole bolivia coup was the result of uh they privatized or they nationalized their lithium mines and lithium is a massive commodity in the green economy uh lithium ion batteries are used in you know tesla cars and things like that um so there's kind of this paradox called the jevons paradox which is that the more efficient we make our technologies, the more resources they actually use because they make the resources cheaper. Uh, so you have, um, I mean, there's also like the... Yeah, because this kind of ties into capitalism not being able to deal with externalities that well. No, it, right? I mean, because like... Because it's the, uh, like you said, the cheap, the cheaper, oftentimes it, the cheapest energy source or resource is the most harmful in terms of like globally speaking yeah does that kind of tie in at all i think that externality is a total you know the word itself is an indictment of the way we look at economics it's just like you know the economic process is envisioned as this like interchange between uh human or between uh firms and consumers uh but there's also this massive metabolism between the economy and the earth itself you know we are uh most economic textbooks written by neoclassical economics refer to natural capital natural resources as a free gift and viewing like that in itself is a problem you know right it creates this attitude where we view nature instrumentally and we think that you know these resources are going to last forever and when they don't last we can you know jet off to mars and start mining asteroids and whatnot. And I think that's what a, a lot of this like new renewed interest in space travel is about is like capital is realizing, oh shit, 
Earth is limited in its resources and its ability to sustain human life, we're going to have to start reaching out into the galaxy. So you see these scrambles to get off Earth and build second homes. I think uh, the Amazon's ironically financed by Jeff Bezos, but an Amazon series called The Expanse, which basically depicts capitalism in space as just like massive extraction from the resources of the world. And that's kind of the environmental philosophy of capitalism is just that we can always find more. And I think that that's a flawed view. And it kind of fuels this like technological vision that we can uh, just continue to mine the earth dry and not pay the consequences, I guess. Yeah. And so we already kind of, I think, so I guess my argument would be that, you know, we need to find the solution, not within improved technology, but within a reconsideration of what the economy should look like. Uh, you know, we need to move away from this view of uh, natural resources as a free gift and start viewing them as stocks which need to be replenished over time. Um, you know, fishing is a perfect example of this. We need to move from the old economic paradigm, which didn't factor in nature at all to one in which we consider the world around us that needs to be preserved. And I guess that's another of Land's arguments, which is that, you know, it's really too late for all of that. And the only hope for humanity is to escape into the technosphere, you know, to become one with capital, to become cyborgs or whatnot. And I think that even that is kind of limited by the fact that capitalism is no longer able to deliver on those innovations. Do you think, now this was my assumption going in, that Land's whole accelerationist thing is, is about really speeding up, like really, I think, being a broader goal rather than like like the idea of humanity in, in quotes, like not being so concerned with like the individuals or like the current state of the world, but really like the broader as a species, like we need to be speeding things up and then like whatever, like this Uber mention idea. Yeah. I will like, they will like almost the con, like the cons concept, like from star Wars or not star Trek. Trek. Trek, Trek, Sorry. You know what I mean? Where we're like, we're moving like some, some aspect of humanity needs to accelerate and then become, uh, cyborgs, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. And that's the future and get working towards that goal instead of like this more inclusive, like I think picture of, of progress and humanity that I think the left historically has. Yeah. I think the left has been about, especially because of, you know, the Hegelian Leninist tendency, the left has always been very humanist. Uh, whereas Le- like Deleuze and Guattari kind of began this move away from humanism, kind of inspired by Nietzsche, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and eventually, you know, Land is the you know perfect culmination of that. I would consider him an anti-humanist. He uh, is not really consi- uh, he's not really writing from the perspective of a human future. He's writing with capital as the subject of his philosophy. You know, uh, and he thinks that. Uh, it's not really about us anymore, almost, hi- history. It's about capital becoming intelligent and learning to think for itself and really shedding humanity like a skin, almost. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like a chrysalis. Yeah. Like, and, you know, that has 
obviously terrifying implications for a humanist left, which is uh, defined by its kind of, you know, view of capitalism as an alienating uh, system. Land really just leans into the alienation. Yeah, like we're be or like we're beyond the point that that vision could could have been realized. Like the material conditions have accelerated beyond the point of which that vision even is a possibility. And I think mm-hmm. this is one aspect that I think really makes has a lot of resonance for me in particular is like realizing that we're like we are already in a in a large sense in in this accelerationist paradigm to some degree in in like in some ways. And the kind of quaint notions of you know the left has kind of built itself on over history like are just simply inadequate and not prepared to deal with address this. with address the situation that we're like re- the depth of the situation that we're in really mm-hmm. and so that's the where i found a lot of purchase in in all of the readings was they really even though i don't know that i agree with all of the prescriptions i largely did feel like it f- it's really articulating the depths of the, the really the nadir of where we are as a species and what we have to overcome and being very realistic about where that is because I think so much of like doing you know trade unionism etc cetera, etc cetera, like I mean I just don't think that shit's gonna work like I don't think the infrastructure within culture exists for a mass class politics like you're having there's the over like that that era is done like we're we're too late like we've already been uh, that portion has been absorbed so into I would, this new crazy... I would actually push back on that a little bit I think um this is jumping ahead a little bit but uh you know with the breaking of labor power in the neoliberal era the 1970s and the 1980s you know you saw Thatcher breaking the miners strikes Reagan breaking the airport strikes uh and that was kind of the start of this you know massive discipline of labor by the market. Um, I think that that has been, and there are a lot of um, the autonomous Marxists, so Antonio Negri, uh, Michael Hart, um, Harry Cleaver, who lives in Austin as well. um, He kind of says that it is this breaking of labor that has kind of blocked the accelerative tendency because labor, you know, the labor movement in pushing for a shorter working day and better pay has led to its own replacement by these machines. So I think a lot of the reason this accelerationist tendency has stalled out is because there's no, you know, there's no incentive for individual capitalists to replace labor with machinery when they can buy it for so cheap these days. Uh, I think, you know, Uber is another great example of that. We've been hearing about self-driving cars for the last 10 years and you know i haven't seen one uh i think we're not going to see the rollout of these technologies until uh people really start making a stink about the gig economy and the way that it uh relies on an infinite amount of human labor time to fuel itself i think that if you can rely on a human being for cheap labor why invest in a self-driving car yeah i mean that makes sense but at the same time it's like where are i definitely think that labor cannot be the only strategy i i would like can 
kind of agree with that. Like, I'm, I, th- I mean, it, to me, it's just, it's so obvious, like, fucking look around and it, we are, be, we, like, we need a revol, we're in so dire need of a revolution mm-hmm. in terms of our, you know, social reproduction that it's like, if what, what else is it going to take? Like, there was the Iraq war, there was the 2008 collapse, there's Trump, like, at what point does it become enough or is like we said there's that maybe uh, the crutch of like as as conditions worsen like that's yeah and I where, guess, where's the impetus like where's the spark that's going to drive this if it's not conditions becoming worse yeah i think one of the you know main points of land's early writings was that we really have so little control over the process of technological acceleration and he kind of is very critical of the idea that we can influence it and he places a lot of faith in uh, technology to solve these problems and I think that that is where his kind of rightward turn began to emerge Um, in his interview with Justin Murphy he talks about uh, so like in the 90s the early 90s Land wrote these works like Meltdown which were incredibly prophetic and revolutionary but also uh I think played it fast and loose with actual reality. And he speaks in this interview with Justin Murphy about beginning to feel a sense of profound disappointment with the way the technological change played out over the course of the late 90s and the early thousands. Uh, He specifically cites Facebook as like a nightmarish version of a technological future. They're just harvesting our data. They're not really innovating. And that's where this rightward turn starts to emerge. He kind of uh, believes that he cites the blockage to accelerationism as being in the realm of politics. He thinks that it is a function of uh, the failure of democracy and its devolution into kind of, he, I think he calls them distributional coalitions who kind of fight for pieces of the pie uh, that is produced by capital without actually adding value. Uh, so his solution is, I wouldn't, even call it fascism. It's it's basically the merging of the state and capitalism into massive corporations where the, you know, institutionalized bribery of libera- liberalism, liberal democracy gives way to fungible shares in a massive corporation. So he kind of takes on this view that uh, in order to restart capitalism's, you know, revolutionizing of the technological sphere we have to do away with democracy and I think that's an error on his part uh, because he kind of I think he's probably read Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan one too many (laughs) times and Capital one too few he you know argues that it's a political blockage rather than an acceleration or or economic blockage which I think is the actual case in that uh, Capital is no longer innovating and it's partially a result of the breaking of labor, which, you know, was a, I think, undervalued aspect of this acceleration. And also, um, like David Graeber talks a lot about how uh, we've stopped doing like blue skies innovation, where we kind of, um, it's not driven by the prospect, in his words, of immediate practical application. And that's what leads to unexpected breakthroughs. That's like, in the post-World War II era, we had these massive public research and development yeah. So shit's like, it's, there's too much over-determination. It's, you know, this massive public investment that 
led to so much technological progress in the area era following World War II yeah, has been replaced. It didn't have a clear profit, like a clear path to profitability exactly. the way that now everything has, has to exactly. have some kind of fucking actuarial. Yeah, like another figure that Graeber trots out in uh, On Flying Cars, his essay uh, about this kind of slowdown of technological productivity is that uh, two out of every three research dollars now are coming from the private sector rather than the public sector. And that's leading to a lot of like perverse outcomes you know, uh, the research and development that once went into the space race, for example, is now being redirected into the military industrial complex. So we're getting things like artificially intelligent fucking killing machines that no one asked for and no one wants, but because they are, because it's the private sector and, you know, private interests, like the military funding all this research, I think Graeber says that 95% of all robotics research goes through the Pentagon in the United States. So, you know, we're not automating assembly lines anymore. We're building highly efficient killing machines, which, like, you know, it's it's a fucking nightmare. Yeah. I suppose we should just jump directly into the first piece, which is Meltdown, and I actually want to read a little, uh, give the listener a little bit of a taste that I really enjoyed <laughs> this quote here. Beyond the judgment of God, meltdown, planetary China syndrome, dissolution of the biosphere into the technosphere, terminal speculative bubble crisis, ultraviolet, ultravirus and revolution stripped of all its Christian socialist eschatology down to its burnt core of crash security, is poised to eat your TV, infect your bank account, and hack xeno data from your mitochondria. Yeah, that's what I really meant when <laughs> I said this is more epic poetry than theory. It's just like... He's painting a very vivid picture of the way that uh, technology dissolves, I think, uh, social order and revolutionizes social conditions way more effectively than any kind of revolution in his view could ever do. Uh, and I think he's, it's, it's definitely hard to watch what he's become, <laughs> given how prescient I think he was as a young writer and kind of almost utopian in a way. You know, definitely not a human utopia, but a post-human utopia for sure. He also says this. I enjoy this little bit about Deluso Guattarian schizoanalysis coming from the future. Yeah, I think um, I, I like this. There's a really good quote from um, Machinic Desire, which is another piece of his, where he says, um, "Oh shit, what is it?" that like artificial intelligence is a invasion from the future uh that must you know construct itself using enemy pieces using you know human labor to advance this accelerating techno economic paradigm i guess yeah and you talked a little bit about this having some relationship to the matrix yeah, so um, one of the things I'm working on for my YouTube series uh, is kind of explaining Land's philosophy through the lens of the Matrix. Um, I think that the Matrix was most successful when it kind of examined the relationship between humans and machines and viewed machines as almost having a human agency, uh, or not, not a human agency, an alien agency that kind of has its own um, 
is capable of or, or determines human history in a way that we really have no control over. Um, and Mark Fisher has a great quote about it, which is that um, he says, um, the future will not uh, unmask capital as exploited labor power, but rather humans will be revealed as the meat puppets of capital. Capital, you know, relies on our continued participation in the labor system to fuel its own development and really doesn't care about human lives. It kind of views us as instruments for its own acceleration. And I think that that is kind of where the matrix gets it right. You know, like humans within our our simple cogs, I think it's safe to say within the machinery of capitalism. Oh, for sure. And um, there's another great quote from, the cyberneticist Norbert Wiener, who I think inspired Land a lot, which is that, you know, uh, machine labor is the economic equivalent of slave labor. And any human that has to compete with slave labor is going to feel the effects of that in, you know, increasing increasing exploitation and instrumentality. Um, yeah. I think, I think the Matrix definitely if not intentionally kind of captured what land was talking about like if if they didn't read him themselves then they accidentally stumbled upon basically all of his ideas yeah well i think they so they did draw some inspiration from baudrillard and yeah, simulacra <laughs> so and it's funny I think... even though it was poorly done it's still in a sense like it's dead on but in or not dead on but it's in the right direction but in another sense it's not like they didn't quite grasp what Baudrillard was getting at, but I think there's there's a similar uh, I don't know if it's a Nietzschean streak or like sort of an end of history from a different standpoint that I think Baudrillard like I see some similarity between Land and Baudrillard in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. I think the funny thing about Baudrillard and the Matrix is that they actually uh, they include a copy of Simulacra, yeah. like Neo stores his. Uh, his like hacker gear in a copy of Simulacra and Simulacrum and Baudrillard or Baudrillard responded by saying like, what the fuck? This is not what I was <laughs> yeah, talking about. Exactly. Like, but I mean, I, th- I think instead of, you know, they, they might've been influenced by Baudrillard, but I feel like land really oh, yeah. captures the vibe. More concretely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. You did mention a little bit the instrumentality here and you, I see you have a note about, how this ties into the the Frankfurt School? Yeah, so Max Horkheimer, uh, kind of the... Did I just... I think we're good. Um, Horkheimer kind of pins as one of the main culprits behind capitalist alienation something called instrumental reason, which is that we kind of have been conditioned to view view everything, the natural world, uh, the economy as a tool. And instrumental reason is kind of capital's view of the world. Everything is a tool. Uh, and Land, I think, even calls it the monster, calls capitalism the monstrous reign of the tool. Um, you know, instrumental reason is kind of states that we have come to it, it, it i guess it argues that we are dehumanizing ourselves by viewing everything as a tool as a means to an end 
and that uh, in a certain way we are even becoming means to an end for capital's own self-valorization we're in the way that we're cogs in the labor machine and that capital um, constantly requires more and more human labor you know we've I think this comes a lot from like Descartes and stuff like that who viewed a lot of the natural world as like a machinery almost and kind of paved the ground for this like industrial scientific view of the world uh, as a machinery that I think, you know, has a lot to do with our alienation from nature in the present day and kind of captures how alienated we've become from the world that spawned us i think so much of it is wrapped up too in the uh like the like the judeo-christian or the christian like the church had such outsized influence early on like you know throughout history Mm -hmm. and viewing nature as like there's a mastery of man over nature yeah i think that's francis bacon who said kind of given like that's the paradigm that we've looked at nature with through that through that lens for so long Mm -hmm. and that even today i think maybe like now we're sort of finally realizing wait wait a minute too late you know yeah exactly like oh shit right what have we done um yeah no i think that uh that has a lot to do with like the you know economic view of nature as a free gift uh we've kind of we view nature as an instrument within this machine that is really being determined by capital's own need for self-valorization and self-development and it's not really us you know while we do create capital to service human needs capital really has a mind of its own and is really setting the agenda more so than we are because it has really set the terms for our survival whereas survival back in the hunter-gatherer days was determined by our relationship to nature now to survive in an economy, you need to constantly be making profit. You need to be constantly putting work in. Uh, and I think it really develops this not only instrumental view of nature, but even an instrumental view of ourselves. Like there's this, like, I think this phrase human capital, I think is such an, you know, potent and loaded ideological term that really defines the way we're coming to view ourselves as part of the machine and developing our skills to service, you know, capital rather than developing capital to service our own needs and survival. Yeah. Well, there's this the tremendous contradiction in the capitalist division of labor, especially now in the era that we are. It's like the division of labor is so completely, it is instrumentalized mm-hmm. incredibly to like the nth degree. So now we're in a position to where we are like the division of labor has enabled so much, but it's also like whenever climate change comes knocking at the door and nobody knows how the, how to survive or do anything to reproduce ourselves. Yeah. Really like, because we've been focusing on all these bullshit needs and like all this fake made up desires to perpetuate capital Mm -hmm. rather than like what now we're like, what's going to happen when the electrical grid goes out or like all these yeah. logistical systems and et cetera, like all the, you know, basically the way that we're doing agriculture and shit like that, that, yeah. you know, there's a debt that's going to 
mm-hmm. come due at some point. And I think there's really something worth saying about how uh, I think the Marxist economist James O'Connor says that capital leads, you know, its development ultimately leads to an underproduction of nature or an overconsumption, not necessarily in the Malthusian sense where humans are overconsuming nature, but in a sense where capital demands the constant input of nature's uh, things like oil, for example, for its own development. You know, every hour of labor productivity is fueled by a certain amount of uh, energy. And if our energy regime is structured around fossil fuels, it's, you know, a double-edged sword where, you know, on the one hand, you need this massive energy input to fuel a massive economy and to develop an economy. But on the other hand, it's undermining the long-term exactly. longevity of the right. human species. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for Land, I don't think that really matters. He's not really concerned with the future of the human species. I think for him, it's like uh, either we adapt or we die. Uh, and it's his kind of philosophical view is that history was not about us. He kind of uses this example that Elon Musk gave uh, where Musk views uh, he says it would be a shame if humanity was merely the bootloader for an artificial intelligence and you know is discarded at the end i think for land that's like it's going to happen you right. know there's no value judgment there yeah and that's yeah. what kind of what i was talking about earlier with that kind of like that push of that kanum khan yeah i mean it's just like you know for land the development of technology is out of our hands it's not happening along our imperatives it's happening along capitals yeah and again yeah that that image from the matrix do you know what i'm talking about where he neo pokes his finger into the mirror and mm-hmm. then that kind of that substance like won't let go and then Coating, it starts to yeah. encode him and then it like goes down his throat and you get that very like it's a really great digital sound yeah, effect I, I that kind of like that. dial yeah. tone kind of like yeah yeah <laughs> that's kind of what how i view that's kind of like my view of where we are as far as being just completely immersed and coded in this algorithm that's beyond our ability Mm -hmm. to change or control or do anything really i think i think that's fair we're being absorbed by a machinic conscious yeah it's like this i think maybe like capitalism is the ai takeover that everyone has been afraid of exactly or like prophesied or whatever you know and that is the like it's the emergent algorithm that's another kind of taking uh, on its own logic regardless of what humanity desires or what have you like there's a disentanglement that's another kind of um area where this whole instrumental rationality comes up is that uh there's this you know ai philosopher nick bostrom who's got this very popular theory about the dangers of uh developing an artificial intelligence without human morality or uh rationality which is that you know if you program a self-driving car with certain, you know, imperatives, uh, it might follow those imperatives to ways that don't take into consideration things like human life. So, like, you know, a AI program to save the life of its driver might, you know, run into a school bus to slow itself down instead of, like, going off a cliff. Right. Um, Bostrom gives this example called the paperclip maximizer, which is that, you know... Um, say we create a paper sh- uh, a paperclip uh, producing machine, artificial intelligence, that its only job is to produce more and more paperclips, it could hypothetically turn the entirety of Earth 
you know, mining its like iron core or whatever into paper clips. <laughs> and Nick Land, I think, has a pretty funny comeback to that, which is that, you know, he doesn't think that uh, artificial intelligence and intelligence explosion could lead to something so stupid happening. But uh, it is an example of how, you know, capital follows its own internal logic without consideration of things like human morality. Anything else about Meltdown? Do you want to? I mean, I, I just think it's an incredibly entertaining read. Oh, it is. It's, yeah. it's so well written and, you know, poetic. And I really like that um, bit. I think that's that kind of reminds me of The Matrix, too, uh, which is like melt. There's a future for you in Meltdown as a schizophrenic, transsexual, Chinese, Latina, HIV positive <laughs> hooker with uh, a bad attitude and implanted mirror shades. Uh, who's just, like, killed three Turing cops. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. our future in the world of accelerating artificial intelligence runaway is not as humans, but as cyborgs. Uh, there's no... Like, he kind of... I think for land, we have to sacrifice our humanity if we want to make it through this oncoming crisis. And I think that's interesting but i also think that brings up the problems of how capitalism is obstructing this kind of technological acceleration that he predicted and i think you know that's a good segue into acid communism um yeah is there anything else you want to touch on i was just going to say that i think that we're already in a sense becoming cyborgs especially if you think about smartphone and Mm -hmm. the internet and all this you know it's allowing us to augment our own primitive kind of communicative capabilities etc right so like the speed and i think even musk talks about this too is like it's the speed of the interface that is the bottleneck currently right mm -hmm. but effectively at some point you could envision a time where or you know a future where the smart whatever the internet is like integrated into humanity somehow and through some kind of like biomechanical what i don't even know to speculate but yeah i think um you know i personally like i view the internet as like an extension of my own mind like why i feel like i I'm a very it is. I mean, it person, absolutely. Yeah. You know, like I. We don't have to be like. There's no pressure to remember. But I also feel like a huge part of that is that I have been conditioned to view the. You know, why store all this like knowledge in my head when I can access it at any point on the internet? And I think that kind of speaks to like I think you know the increasing prevalence of you know these psychological. Uh, transformations that like Deleuze and Guattari speak about, like the kind of increasing rates of schizophrenia and autism are kind of reflections of how our, even our neurochemistry is being changed by the technology that surrounds us. Our relationship to the technological world is changing our brains in ways that we, you know, could never have potentially foreseen. I think that speaks a lot to Land's idea that there's no really controlling this uh, and that, you know, we're being transformed by machines just as much as we are transforming the machines themselves. Yeah. Now, this may be something that Deleuze and Watari are talk about, but I think that the question of 
what constitutes desire outside of capitalism is a fascinating one for me in particular. I don't know. You might know. You've, I think you've had a little bit more exposure. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Land, you know, his particular defense of capitalism is that it is really seized on these flows of desire in a way that, you know, a post-capitalism really can't do. He, he argues that ca- for whatever you want, capitalism is the best way to get it. Um, which I'm, I'm not sure that's necessarily true. I want fucking healthcare, and uh, <laughs> capitalism is definitely not doing that for me. But like, because right. it's and it's because it's controlling, it's creating scarcity mm-hmm. via markets. Yeah, and I think that's you know where land falls short in a lot of ways. You know, this is Fisher's critique of him in this essay, Terminator versus Avatar. He says that land really narrowed in on the deterritorialization aspect of what um, Deleuze and Guattari talk about, how capitalism dissolves social order, how it uproots people and traditions and cultures and kind of fucks them up, you know. Uh, But he doesn't talk about the compensatory process of re-territorialization as much, which is how, you know, structures like government and culture and religion kind of try to fit those deterritorialized flows of capital and whatnot into new boxes like the nation state and, you know, constrain it so that the rate of technological change doesn't happen at such a massively fast rate that it completely... Destroys the civil fa- social fabric. Exactly, yeah. destroys the social fabric. And um, I think for land, that's like... Land really speaks critically of the re territorialization process, and that's kind of like the target of much of his antip- antipathy. He calls it the human security system, uh, kind of the system we use to uh, stabilize ourselves in an ever-changing world. And he, he thinks, you know, get rid of it. But I think, you know, human beings don't work that way. Uh, we cling to tradition in a way that, you know, prevents us from just embracing this cyborg humanity vision uncritically, I guess. Yeah. But uh, moving on to acid communism, this is uh, the second piece from Fisher I've read. I read Capitalist Realism quite a while ago. So this is like, I think, the antithesis to Capitalist Realism. It was meant to be the introduction to a book uh, called Acid Communism, which he was planning to write uh, shortly before he committed suicide. Uh, whereas capitalist realism kind of talks about the way that we have uh, our ability to imagine a future has been compromised by neoliberalism's impose, imposition of, you know, market discipline on labor, its breaking of labor. Capitalist realism he describes as a um, invisible barrier constraining thought and creativity uh acid communism he kind is kind of his introduction to you know a way to undermine the atmosphere created by capitalist realism he talks about psychedelic consciousness as a process of mind opening that could potentially um you know Open up a crack and open up a crack in ideology. I think maybe is. I, I, think, so I think maybe that's where psychedel- what psychedelics, including marijuana, even to some extent, do is it like it can show you that 
your world like ideology like yeah Yeah. if there's this one way of seeing things is maybe not like exactly like i think people who've never taken hallucinogens have this vision of like i mean like even even weed is like to some extent can due to like metacognition right you're thinking about thinking yeah it opens up like this different perspective yeah exactly i mean what lsd does is it increases comic uh, connectivity between different areas of the brain that don't normally communicate and that's why you get these like you know the vision and sensory processing area of your brain is communicating with the creative part of your brain which is like causing you to have these visual and auditory hallucinations but also it kind of uproots your i guess conceptions about the world and i think that's kind of what he views as a possible alternative to the you know oppressive cultural and psychic atmosphere of capitalist realism which basically states that you know this is it there's no alternative this is the end of history uh you know yeah but i mean acid communism i think it's partially about that psychedelic consciousness but it's also about uh the way that this accelerationist kind of trajectory has stalled out uh and he talks about the social movements at the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s as really challenging uh our views of the world in unprecedented ways and the way that neoliberalism and cultural capitalist realism kind of were marshaled as a way to shut down this like you know, a fusion of desire, which kind of was a massive threat to capitalism. Um, And specifically, he talks about the hippie movement as, you know, the greatest threat that ever emerged to capitalism. You know, it was this young generation of uh, young people who were, they completely rejected capitalist modernity. They wanted something different um they were not interested in work for the sake of work they wanted a uh rich social life beyond just the world of work um yeah there are a lot of different themes coursing through this like 30 page introduction and it's brilliant and heartbreaking that it was never finished you know um yeah and I, I've had this idea a lot that 68 was sort of the, that was the end of history in a sense, mm-hmm. because you have, you know, the student movement in France and also, you know, even in the U.S., like that was a, that wasn't the, Summer of Love was, I think, earlier, right? But 69 was the Summer of Love. Anyways, yeah. it kind of feels like right around that time point is where kind of like you're talking about neo neoliberalism really just kind of appeared as crushed a, yeah <laughs> crushed any kind of opportunity we had like maybe that was the closing of the envelope and i think as i as i mentioned sense. i think that really begins in 73 i think you know 68 is the height of the revolutionary kind of period that was a, like you know only able to kind of blossom because of the kind of stability of the post-war keynesian economic order where you know unions were incredibly strong there was guaranteed full employment pretty much as a economic policy. And it really enabled uh, working class movements like the Black Panthers, the 
United Farm Workers. In France and Germany, you have the student movements of 68. Uh, you have the hippie movements in the Summer of Love. Uh, and I think, you know, 60, yes, you know, it began in the early 60s with like the civil rights movement kind of reached a crescendo around the Summer of Love. You have like the, like within the hippie movement, you have like organizations like the Diggers who uh, were a kind of San Francisco based commune that was like giving out free medicine, healthcare, and drugs. Uh, and you know literature and whatnot to people in Haight Ashbury who were like participating on the ground in this you know not only uh, economic rejection or rejection of like the ideology of work but also a cultural effusion of you know hope and uh, utopianism that you know you really don't see a parallel to and especially now like uh, Fisher writes um, there's this great quote that's, that's like the 60s have come to seem at once like a deep past so exotic and distant that we can cannot imagine living in it and a moment more vivid than now a time when people really lived and when things really happened you know i think that's a like if you've ever watched like if you ever watched mad men i saw the first episode but i, I think, never got into the series but it had a pretty point i still remember yeah it's just like the 60s are such an interesting and fascinating time that i feel like we have never really stop thinking about as a culture because there was really a sense of progress then with the civil rights movement and you know the hippie movement which i mean like petered out but it was really there was possibility exactly yeah it was an era of of possibility at least yeah and um you know it was like I think a lot of people on the left really undervalue the hippie movement as, you know, they say it was like a bourgeois kind of uh, led by, you know, students and whatnot. But I think that really undersells it as, you know, it was so cheap to go back to college or go to college those days that like it was a real democratization of Bohemia in the way that like early bohemian movements like the silent generation uh you know Hemingway and them those were kind of like really uh petty bourgeois bourgeois figures who were living a life of luxury but the hippie movement was it cut across class lines it cut across racial lines it kind of formed these coalitions that uh i think went um uncapitalized upon yeah well, you see, like, the Communist Party backing the government crackdowns, I think, particularly in France. Right. You may know better the history on... Yeah, so, other... I mean, like, the May, the May 68 movement, you know, you have these uh, student movements which completely reject organization, and uh, I think that, you know, was a problem, but you also had these kind of tenuous coalitions with the uh, old left, which had been kind of very institutionalized. Um, so, like, you know, the social democratic uh, labor old left was not prepared for the kind of revolutionary enthusiasm of these young people who didn't want a future of permanent work. They'd kind of come to accept capitalism as a fact of reality 
and we're just jockeying for better positions within capitalism, you know, fighting for uh, benefits and uh, various like, you know, collective bargaining agreements, like things that are, you know, valuable in themselves, but they were centered entirely around the workplace. And Murray Bookchin has this, you know, he was kind of like a real prophet of the new left in the way that Herbert Marcuse was as well. Um, and he says that Marxism and the old left really ca- failed to capture the worker as a multifaceted human being with desires beyond just the world of work. And I think that is really where the, you know, old left got scared. You know, their power came from organizing workers. And if the new generation didn't want to work, something they viewed as bourgeois decadence, when in fact it was a result of this emerging psychedelic consciousness, a new utopianism, um, I think they really just failed to seize on those revolutionary currents. And then we have uh, in 73, and you kind of mentioned this a bit, or kind of hinted towards this as being the era of stag stagflation. Yeah, so... And really, the, I think the opening where kind of neoliberalism kind of... Began to... Shoved its foot in the door. Exactly, yeah. And lodged itself in. And Yeah, so, I mean... Um, the stagflation crisis is really a massive, it's it's when the golden era of post-war Keynesianism comes crashing down. Um, you have, you know, one of the core tenets of Keynesian economic policy is full employment. Um, but in October 73, during the Yom Kippur War between Israel and several Arab states, you know, Israel had the backing of all these Western powers And, uh, you know, the only recourse that the Arab states had was to institute this oil embargo. And oil is a a factor of, you know, especially in an oil-heavy energy regime, it's a factor of production in pretty much every commodity. So you see this massive um, inflation begin to happen where commodities are becoming more, you know, expensive, but... There's also economic stagnation. You know, jobs are not blooming as much. Corporate profits are down. And uh, the Keynesian full employment begins to become a problem because, you know, when you have full employment, you don't have the reserve army of labor. You know, unemployed workers who are constantly driving down the price of labor by uh, willing, they're willing to accept lower wages for jobs. And if you have full employment, and strong labor unions, which are agitating for more pay for less work time. At the same time, this whole system is uh, like the whole inflation is happening. It really brings the economy to grinding halt. And you really start to see the outlines of the neoliberal program emerge uh, in Chile in 73. Um, so they had this democratic socialist president, Salvador Allende. It was like kind of a new, exciting strain of socialism beyond just Leninism, which had, you know, been such a success in the third world, but had not really taken root in the first world, which I think makes sense because first world conditions are totally different than third world conditions or global north, global south, however you want to phrase it. Right. Um, 
so Salvador Allende's Chile was, you know, experimenting with these like incredibly, you know, brilliant and futuristic kind of systems of economic organization. Like they had this computer, uh, the cyberneticist called Stafford Beard. Uh, he pr- like helped them produce this thing called CyberSign, which was basically a ep- economic planning centralized computer system which would communicate with different factories across chile and you know say you know we need this many uh tons of pig iron things like that and it would you know allow for the transmission of resources without a uh market and this was very ahead of its time and you know in 73, September 11th, before we had our September 11th, September 11th, 20, uh, 1973, Allende is overthrown in a coup backed by the U.S. and, you know, orchestrated by Henry Kissinger, where uh, uh, Augusto Pinochet comes to power and he's a nightmarish military dictator who, you know, is famous for throwing communist dissidents out of helicopters and really cracks down on and destroy it, like go into the offices of CyberSign, the cybernetic thing and take sledgehammers to the computers and uh, begin to implement, you know, the kind of neoliberal policies, breaking labor unions that really define the neoliberal era and were rolled out around the world in the 80s, especially with, you know, Thatcher, Reagan, and even by socialist governments like Mitterrand uh, in France. Um, or ostensibly social democratic orders. Um, so yeah, 73, I think, is really the... Uh, I think September is when Chile happens, October is when the uh, Yom Kippur War happens, and that really begins a down... like a period of profound stagnation that, you know, is when you start to see wages... You know, there's that picture that everyone posts on Twitter when they're making their arguments about economics that oh, yeah, the shows decoupling. the decoupling of wages from technological productivity. And that's when you really start to see technological productivity begin to stagnate because, as I said, the, excel- or the uh, autonomous theory is that when you have no working class agitating for higher wages and less work, you have no in- like incentive to replace them with machinery. And that really kind of um, throws a wrench into this like accelerating technological paradigm technological paradigm that Land talks about, and I think he was on the very tail end of you know he begins to see in the two thousands that this like vision has entirely stalled out, and I think that's a result of neoliberalism being incapable of delivering on that kind of technological promise that has fueled capitalism for so long at the same time you have the so you have the even at that point i think the the capability to reduce the workday to some like you know what i mean there's opportunity there but instead of going that route that that would have yeah we've uh, like through consumer goods that really yeah offered a so like instead of working less now we're working more to afford these 
consumer kind of trinkets exactly. rather than like that's the trade-off that was made and this is something marx talks about so you know the com- com- concept of surplus value is you know workers can produce what they need for their own survival in a certain amount of time and what they're made to produce beyond that is the surplus value which is extracted by capital and sold for profit but there are two types of surplus value there's absolute surplus value which is defined by work time and relative surplus value, which is defined by the efficiency of machinery. So, you know, uh, you can create more surplus value by having your workers work more. So rather than work two hours and produce what they need, they produce eight hours and produce what they need, plus six hours of goods that you can sell for profit. The other uh, relative surplus value is the efficiency of machines. So, you know, you can put out more products in the same amount of time with the improvement of relative surplus value. And neoliberalism has really seen capital rely more on absolute surplus value than relative surplus value, but it's the improvement of relative, or the increase of relative surplus value, which incentivizes capital to improve, to produce more in less time. And if you can have a worker work longer and produce the same amount of goods, why innovate I think Moisha Postone puts it well, which is that relative surplus value is the form of surplus value adequate to the development of capital. Absolute surplus value is just more time, and that makes our lives shittier. It, you know, doesn't fuel this acceleration. And I think that's where Nick Land really gets it wrong these days, is that he thinks that capitalism is the solution, but right now capitalism is, and especially neoliberal capitalism is, has a huge time preference for more work than it does for anything else. What else, as far as acid communism, do you want to, is there anything else you wanted to um, to discuss? I had a few quotes and... and yeah, I, like I think that. there's a good point that, you know, I think a lot of the reason that the left rejects the hippie movement is not a leftist movement, is that it kind of really seized on these uh, neoliberalism seized on the desires unleashed by the hippie movement for richer individualism and it kind of turned the individualism of uh, you know culture into an individualism defined by consumption so rather than you know acceding to our desires for less work for a richer cultural sphere for these like through these forms of collective solidarity, you see neoliberalism impose what Fisher calls a mandatory individualism, where you define who you are by the products you consume. Right, and the, that's where like Baudrillard with symbolic exchange, I think, becomes very like important in understanding mm-hmm. this trajectory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally get that. What other uh, quotes stood out to you? Uh, well, there was one that I thought rang pretty true is, especially you see this now, is neoliberal freedom evidently is not a freedom from work, but freedom through work. Right. And I think that absolutely is the mantra of the kind of PMC class. <laughs> right. And I mean, like freedom through work, you know how to say that in German? Arbeit macht frei. It's like what they hung on the gates of Auschwitz, work will set you free. It's like, it's <laughs> the Christ. pure distilled ideology of capitalism, uh. you know. It, and it's, you know, ridiculous because it's the exact opposite of the truth is that more work means less time to uh, enjoy 
the world that capital that work has built. There's another couple of quotes, and then we can move on to the the manifesto. But uh, mm-hmm. one that I wanted to read that kind of to that to that end about a uh, consumer culture that the consumer economy makes us slaves to commodities that the function of the mass media is to manipulate our fantasies so we will equate fulfillment with buying the system's commodities and i think that really underscores that symbolic exchange idea yeah i I mean like it's like a treadmill of desire where there's always a new product that you can be and i feel like you know I even succumb to this. I absolutely do. Yeah, I'm guilty. (laughs) I'm a slut for brands. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's just like, yeah, I... And not even the brand, it's the, what that brand, it's the signification, it's the cultural signification in competition for a market of something, whether that be, I don't know, like attention or... I think Fisher has this great... uh, quote where he talks about a harsh Leninist superego is defining the contemporary left where yeah. like a lot of it is just like eat your vegetables type yeah. stuff like it's austerity not, yeah it's, there's it's very no austere. libidinal like yeah this is one thing that I have argued for is that we have to take advantage or we have to figure out how to make communism be have a libidinal aspect like I think mm-hmm. a lot of the appeal of fascism and mm-hmm. so forth is like there's a, I don't know, it's attaching itself to, to desire. To certain desires for collective solidarity through, you know, the people, the race or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, I think commun- or like the socialist left has completely failed to capitalize on desire and ends up in often, often being about the repression of these yeah, desires. Yeah, about moralism. Like, you know, it's not good for you to want these harmful commodities. Uh, there's a really good quote from... Um, Jean-Francois Lyotard in uh, Libidinal Economy, where he just like kind of shits on the academic left as saying, you know, oh, you know, you have all these desires. Don't you want to be free from them? Uh, That's just exploitation. We can help you be free from them. But in a certain way, the proletariat enjoys swallowing the shit. This is his (laughs) terminology of capital. You know, the uh, uh, chocolate bars and, you know, trinkets and you know there, there are there has to be a certain balance between this you know necessities only vision and this like fully automated luxury communism which is very much you know i i like the phrase i think that aaron bastani the you know main purveyor of it is a textbook eco-modernist where he has these unrealistic right. views of what we can do and that economic growth is a necessary precondition and we could just have you know, a socialism full of infinity pools. Like, it's not realistic when we talk about ecology. But there, there has to be a balance between no fun and yeah, just because like it's like communism. Fun, yeah. Communism is perceived as taking things away, and it should be about giving things to people. Yeah, absolutely. Spoken very like. And Plainly, I, I think <laughs> basically luxury, you know, it doesn't have to mean, you know, bullshit like this crap that capital produces as a precondition for its survival. It can just mean free time, you know, more time to enjoy the world, to build uh, true luxury, yeah. solidarity, to build collective institutions for enjoyment and recreation and art. Uh, it doesn't have to be defined through consumption. And I right. think that's really what neoliberalism has sold us. Is, yeah, absolutely. 
a individualism defined by yeah consumption for sure um there was one final quote that from acid communism that i wanted to read because i thought this just was kind of like the really laid out very broadly kind of the challenge for us and it's we must produce something that doesn't yet exist and about which we cannot know how and what it will be yeah i i like i i think that you know a lot of the reason for the failure of the contemporary left is that it's still stuck in this Leninist paradigm, which I think Deleuze and Guattari especially go after as embracing a certain level of self-repression, you know, and, you know, the eat your veggies vision of socialism doesn't really appeal to the average person. And I mean, like, it's true that we can't have a car for everybody. That's not a sustainable vision of the future there are just simply not enough resources to do that we need to you know rebuild these public services like public transportation which have been hollowed out by neoliberalism but also you know even so the move to that is going to take resources as well and it's like even the the bootstrapping cost to do solar and wind etc cetera, etc cetera, like that that requires a tremendous and amount I think of resources as well so it's like that's the contradiction that's extremely difficult to overcome i think for, for I think any another, even within capitalism like how the fuck is it going to overcome that i don't think that it can i think it's another testament to the short-sightedness of you know simple technological visions for uh sustainability which is that you know we can simply by eliminating bullshit jobs like which could be eliminated through because they're the result of administrative inefficiency or they could be automated out of existence by eliminating that work which has you know come to permeate the economy we save so much in just emissions you know think about how much fuel we consume and having like a 24 7 hour service economy in powering office buildings that are on all night and right. that are just massive traffic jams that like are a structural result of this like need to fuel the economy you know we can fight climate change pretty effectively by just cutting the working week and it's a <laughs> testament to you know neoliberalism's intense need for us to work constantly that in 1930, John Maynard Keynes said that by 2030, the work week will be 15 hours, <laughs> that that hasn't happened. And I think the left even feeds into that with its fetishization of work to a certain extent. You know, it really fetishizes productivity over. And that's what feeds capital. It feeds the continued uh, reproduction of capital. It needs more and more human labor and it can't bear to release that human labor from the economic process because it needs it to produce surplus value and it needs it as a measure of value itself. Uh, that's what Moisha Postone talks about in his book, Time, Labor, and Tom, uh, Social Domination. Capitalism demands the maximum amount of work. It doesn't care if it's useful, it just needs it. And you know, all that work is powered by fuel. So just, you know, that's it. Even like I've even seen this picked up by certain liberal commentators like this guy. You know, remember 
Rutger Bregman. He is this German guy who spoke at Davos. And oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got this book called Utopia for Realists where he, you know, he's kind of a Keynesian, but he acknowledges that this is the most efficient way to fight climate change is by cutting work across the board. And that, you know, enables a new kind of desire that's not defined by commodities, but could be mutually defined or defined by, you know, collective forms. Any other thoughts in terms of acid communism? I think there's something to be said. Um, It's like the one, you know, salient point I've ever heard said on the Red Scare podcast. (laughs) Um, They say that they they had an interview with a guy who kind of published K-Punk, which was a series of posthumous collected essays of Mark Fisher and acid communism is the very last one. He said that the drug of choice in the 60s and the 70s was LSD because it was a mind expander. It opened eyes to possibilities and the drug of choice in modern culture is Xanax, which is just something to numb the pain of a hollow, alienating capitalism that we've come to inhabit. Uh, Do you want to move on to the bit from Graeber? Do you want to... Yeah, I think it's worth talking about, like even though it wasn't one of our original readings, I think it's worth talking about David Graeber's On Flying Cars because it really highlights the way that accelerationism has stalled which kind of Fisher talks about neoliberalism as the start of that stalling and this kind of brings it back to Land's framework for what accelerationism is uh, Graeber kind of talks about how our sense of future shock has gone away you know um, the 2001 a Space Odyssey being a perfect example of it but I think I've actually brought up most of the points you know there is a massive shift of uh investment in the sciences from the public sector to the private sector. Uh, we're losing this like kind of vision of blue skies research for a more privatized model, which has led to a lot of like, yeah, like I said, military spending, you've got data harvesting, uh, like the privatization of like research. If you look at something like JSTOR, which is a massive enclosure of the intellectual commons, it just like has, yeah. So he, he talks about how, a lot of scientific progress has stalled out, not just because of this like accelerationist tendency of labor that has been blocked by neoliberalism, but also by the kind of investment choices that neoliberalism has made. And it's kind of, you know, dependent on things like intellectual property. Uh, it favors competition between science, the sciences and universities rather than collaboration. And it's really another major factor that is blocking this kind of road to technological utopia, I suppose you could say. Um, But yeah, so I mean, um, the Accelerate Manifesto by Cernicek and Williams was written in, I guess, 2011. And it kind of outlines the basis of a left accelerationism, which is contrasted to land's current you know hard right acceleration reactionary yeah and the neo-reactionary movement um and they talk about the first couple of steps that we need to take and i think probably one of the more salient points is their critique of you know the modern left of the late 90s and early 2000s which they kind of criticize as folk politics um, they privilege things like, you know, consensus-based decision-making, 
And this, I think, is like epitomized by things like Occupy Wall Street, but also like Extinction Rebellion. And I think Extinction Rebellion is a particularly fascinating example because it really illustrates the way that the left has failed to interact with the libidinal kind of flows released by the hippie movement. You know, we've got these like leaderless liberal hippies who are advocating for things like, you know, population control that are utterly reactionary and that the left, you know, knows are false solutions to this problem, but we're not able to mobilize that kind of kind of revolutionary metastasis. Exactly. (laughs) Maybe a metastasis is negative, but I mean like you know rupture event. It's also I think Extinction Rebellion is defined it's not defined around the workplace and the left has for so long been defined by work and its kind of role as an arbiter of negotiating the price of labor power. They mentioned to what I think is really important here, and I kind of got on this as well, like this kind of idea, this Fordism, this like manufacturing return to manufacturing and, and so forth, or these types of jobs as yeah. the goal or like the paradigm that you're thinking from or moving from. And I totally, that's one aspect that I, totally agree it's like that sh- that sh- thing that time is over like oh, we yeah, need absolutely. a new politics that's situated to our conditions as they yeah. exist now so i mean like we in the global north you know live in a primarily service and information-based economy so we have most of the administrative jobs in the global economy most of the you know we've got the gig economy and the modern economy is really defined by like decentralization of production all over the world the flattening of like these managerial hierarchies which kind of defined uh fordist capitalism and then you know the flexibilization of work into i guess what you could call a gig economy yeah um and i think this is one of the areas where leninism is also ill-suited to the conditions of the global north because while that you know need for production and technological development is manifest in countries like china and you know underdeveloped regions of the world it doesn't really apply to a fully developed economy where uh we don't need more stuff really uh we could leave most of the production to the developing world allowing them to develop our their economies while building a politics more adapted to this, you know, service economy post Fordist model. Yeah. And I, I think that Leninism was really defined by the Fordist model, you know, because it kind of seized upon that model as a means of liberation through technological development. Yeah. Well, I think it made, I mean, it probably made a lot more sense in a more industrial bait, like in it a more makes, productive economy than... I think Leninism makes sense for a country like, you know, Soviet, the Soviet Union in 1917, which is a feudal backwater. And I think it's a monumental achievement when you look at the way that it was able to revolutionize the technological forces in that country. It did in three, like what other countries did, like in Germany and England and France and 
even the United States over the course of 300 years of primitive accumulation, it was able to do in 30 through, you know, rigid centralization, but it's totally not the, it's, Leninism exists to till the ground for socialism to be built. It is not a program for building socialism, I think. Interesting. That makes sense. Yeah. And I'm sure I'll get yelled at (laughs) eventually for saying that, but, uh, you know. (laughs) I mean, primarily anarchist here, which I think they even take to task a little bit too with some of the... They're mentioning more politics, like, yeah. Yeah, a more centralized need in, in some regards. I think, you know, it makes sense to decentralize certain things. Like one of my, you know, I, before I went to grad school and got severely burnt out on my activism, I did a little bit of organizing with Austin DSA. And I think, you know, they do a great job in decentralizing things like mutual aid programs, uh, you know, like they're doing things all over the country. They're rolling out these similar programs very well and managing them on a decentralized basis. There's not like one, there is the national political committee, but they don't really operate the individual chapters. But there are other ways in which I think, you know, each chapter had its own education committee. I think that was something that was a huge mistake. You could centralize, and this is especially where things like the internet come in, you could centralize the education of a socialist left so you don't have to have socialist night schools. You could just have, you know, pod, listen to podcasts, YouTube series, and educate yourself in that way rather than decentralizing it and kind of creating this internalized division of labor within socialist organizations. Um, so I think that's where they have a lot of merit in arguing for a little bit of centralization. Uh, I think they argue for a combination of like a network, but also a network with a plan. Whereas, you know, Occupy Wall Street was pure decentralized networks of activists just kind of, you know, arguing a lot. There is merit to having a little bit of organization. I don't know. So yeah, um, they... Cernicek and Williams bring up this concept of the ecology of organizations, which I think is a good angle to come at it from. It's kind of, they advocate advocate for coming at capitalism from multiple angles. So while I think, you know, it's important to revitalize the labor movement in certain respects to, uh, you know, reignite that accelerated tendency towards re- replacing labor with machinery, I also think it's important to, you know, not just be a labor movement. Um, you know, I think, like Bookchin said, Marxism focused too exclusively on the realm of labor to the exclusion of everything else in social life and to the other, you know, kinds of oppression that capitalism relies on as a means of re-territorialization, like racism and sexism and transphobia and what have you. Um, So I think it's important to, you know, not just revert to that workerist left of the late 60s, which failed to capitalize on the, you know, revolutionary fervor of the 60s and 70s left. Um, I think they kind of were short-sighted in those regards. And I think... uh, 
you know, there there is room for a Leninist left, if not in the global north and in the global south, because the that's important for rise, raising the price of labor around the world, for you know, accelerating technological development in places that have been left behind. Uh, but also, you know, you need uh, organizations that can speak to the desires of the first world proletariat. Um, and I, I know people have problems with the first world, third world framing. So I guess the imperial core without relying on that imperialism that kind of allowed for the revolutionary movements of the 60s and 70s in the sense that, you know, the Keynesian economic order was still a very uh, globally, you know, unequal one. There's some great quotes from the piece, too, that I wanted to uh, bring up here, and I think they really capture... This, I think, really captures the moment that we're in. Terminal resource depletion, especially in water and energy reserves, offers the prospect of mass starvation, collapsing economic paradigms, and new hot and cold wars. Continued financial crisis has led governments to embrace the paralyzing death spiral policies of austerity, privatization, of social uh, welfare services, mass unemployment, and stagnating wages, increasing automation and production processes, including intellectual labor, is evidence of this secular crisis of capitalism, soon to render it incapable of maintaining current standards of living for even the former middle classes of the global north, in right. which I think yeah, that's I think what that's we're a, feeling. I mean, that's a fantastic diagnosis. I think that's a pretty prescient point, because like while we think of automation mostly in terms of, you know, more efficient assembly lines and, uh, you know, whatnot. I mean, like more efficient, more efficiency in the actual productive aspect. There are significant automated tendencies, even within the intellectual labor class, the, you know, professional managerial classes being automated or can be automated at the same rate that the rest of the workforce is. And, you know, like the Clinton administration, for example, relied a lot on this like prospect of job retraining. It was like their kind of banner thing. And it, you know, there are only so many, there's only so much retraining you can do. You can't have an economy where everyone codes. It just, you know, there's not much that there's yeah. not that the contradiction much within for... capital will negate, you know what I mean? The wages yeah. will depress as supply goes up. Yeah. So I think that, you know, and I think this is kind of, Another major reason for Land's rightward turn is that he kind of identifies modern capitalism not as a capitalism defined by the morality of the bourgeoisie or the petty bourgeois, but of the professional managerial class, which he calls the cathedral. And I think it's kind of a useful term. He, you know, focuses a lot on the liberal and left wings of the cathedral, which, you know, have their standards of political correctness, which got him kicked out of University of Warwick for, I think, selling drugs to students. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, they kind of cultural conversation, especially if you look on Twitter, is really set by these like managers who I don't think have a very um, promising view of the future. And I don't think they even really have much of a future. Um, I think, yeah. It's that escape, 
there's like liberation through work is that's like the mantra yeah i think you know they are the f- like how can you be pro- impro- you know what i mean like i think they're also the few people who actually f- still are able to find fulfillment in work these days you know for so much of the workforce it's massively divided labor so you work on like a incredibly tiny thing and the professional managerial class gets to you know work in more fulfilling ways even if it's kind of an economy of bullshit and consultants and i think they you know this is a valuable concept i think bakunin talked about even called the labor aristocracy they're really our modern labor aristocracy they have the most vested interest in the continued perpetuation of this labor system and they even you know have i think um more control over the economy than the you know traditional bourgeoisie does like land refers to the like the one percent as an investment income class they basically just live off of their capital and yeah which is now hyper real and don't financialization yeah for sure like it's totally it's even increasingly becoming more like simulated simulacrum i mean I, i would still push back on like the there's like negri has this concept of immaterial labor which is kind of baudrillardian i think which is that you know uh he argues that the labor theory of value no longer even really functions, but I think that that's a misnomer and that, you know, at the very high sectors of the economy, there's a lot of extract, uh, abstraction and a lot of, you know, symbolic exchange and, you know, an economy of fictitious capital, but it, it still all relies on a massive exploitation of peasant labor, right. the third world, you know, uh, industrial labor in the developing world and service labor in the first world. Like these... High capital firms still need, you know, low capital, high labor uh, work in like restaurants and mines and whatnot to make the whole system function. But it's definitely becoming increasingly more abstracted to where, like, if you look at the 2008, 2009 crisis, the underlying, you know, when you're, especially with something like mortgage backed securities, et cetera, like, Mm the derivatives all yeah. the all that kind of shit that's like you remember like the bundle like the more underlying mortgages were <laughs> were all worthless yeah, yet yeah. the cdos or whatever still had value yeah so i think that is a very i think that's that right. trend yeah. is something that i mean it's like bad. yeah you're right like yeah. ultimately there's still but there's a definitely a growing gap i think mm-hmm. and it's increasingly getting more as things like high frequency trading algorithms etc too yeah as well it's like now it's just becoming this kind of bullshit like if you had a computer program that rolled dice like that's effectively what it is at this point yeah and even so i think even just in terms of entrepreneurship or innovation or whatever at the scale at which capitalism exists now it's like everything is probabilities yeah yeah i get that as far as like whatever company is successful like it's it's so micro like it's such a little probability that it's like winning the it's like it's winning the lottery essentially there's a lot of abstraction from the there's no like logic the there's not yeah. not necessarily like a logical flow or whatever like it's it's a system running on its own momentum I yeah think it, exactly yeah and it'd be like you know you might have a superior i mean it's something i 
think I've maybe even used this before, the example of like Betamax versus VHS, right? It's like the superior technology doesn't always win out, which huh. I think is against goes against the logic that you're typically fed yeah. when it comes to capitalism being like this, oh, you know what I mean? Like this competition is always creating like... More innovation, a- yeah. No, I, I think, I mean, like, I don't think that anyone has believed that for a very long time. I mean, even Joseph Schumpeter, he's a... Austrian economist, economist, not even a Marxist. I think he was like kind of part of that Hayek clique almost. And he, you know, and Thorstein Veblen kind of blow out the idea that competition necessarily fuels innovation. Innovation is a collaborative process more often than not, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, back going back to the concept of the cathedral and the PMC, the professional managerial class, I think that Cernicek and Williams have a valid point, which is that we need to start building a counter intelligentsia almost, kind of borrowing from Gramsci that who has this concept of the organic intellectual. The you know, left needs to start building institutions, I think even outside of academia. Uh, because, you know, part of the reason I dropped out of the LBJ school, which is a public policy school, was because I felt like I was being trained to become a manager. You know, I wasn't learning things that I felt could be useful for a left-wing project. I felt like I was being, you know, siloed into uh, the non-profit industrial complex or into working for the world bank or some shit yeah um and i mean like i think land in his idea of the cathedral he really overestimates the influence of the left you know in shaping what is perceived as political correctness i think political correctness is really defined by liberalism and even to a certain extent conservatism you know only now are we starting to see the resurgence of socialist ideas as acceptable within the realm of political discourse um and even that like nudge towards social democracy is vehemently i mean with bernie in particular you can see like i'm not involved in the i'm not i don't super pay attention to the horse race aspect of it but it is still quite striking to see the like they're reject they're rejecting it like a you know antibodies rejecting yeah, the it's virus. It's just like insane. Even the <laughs> most moderate yeah, you know, which is demands. just dry, drives my revolutionary fury fury yeah. even that much. Fury. Like it just <laughs> hopefully not. Fury, <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely not. Fury. <laughs> that's yeah, a, I, I, fervor, <laughs> fervor. Yeah, yeah, fervor. That's what I was going for. That's fair. <laughs> Yeah, we're getting back into anti-Oedipus territory there, I think. Um, But yeah, no, I think, you know, Cernicek and Williams raise very important points about the potential of technology. I think, you know, the left, for I think one perfect example of this is how instinctively factions on the left have rejected blockchain as as a, you know, potential battleground for technological hegemony. Uh, I mean, like currently Bitcoin, you know, it's a commodity money. It's basically only useful for buying drugs. Uh, and it's, you know, just a, f- a massive fetishized commodity. But the technology underlying it could hypothetically be used for decentralized economic planning, the kind of stuff that, you know, I think 
the young land was really interested in. And he's kind of gotten away from this, you know, decentralization, authority, eroding spirit and gone in the opposite direction of the point where I think he recently spoke highly of Mike Bloomberg. Um, <laughs> Jesus. But uh, yeah, I think they raise a lot of points about, you know, there needs to be a battle over technology. We can't just leave yeah, it's, that territory. Yeah. We can't just cede the territory to the right or to these Silicon Valley, you know, hyper capitalists who aren't really delivering, I guess. Yeah. There are, I think, two great quotes from the manifesto to, to close us out. Never believe that technology will be sufficient to save us. Necessary, yes, but never sufficient without socio-political action. Technology and the social are intimately bound up with one another, and changes in either potentiate and reinforce changes in the other. Whereas the techno-utopians argue for acceleration on the basis that it will automatically overcome social conflict, our position is that technology should be accelerated precisely because it is needed to win social conflicts. And that point, I think, is incredibly important. And like you said, where we should maybe embrace something like blockchain as having potentialities for, for the future. I mean, I think blockchain is, you know, the kind of perfect platform on which you could build a time standard currency rather than a, uh, you know, commodity currency. One that could, you know, more equitably distribute time, be planned more democratically and upon which you could, you know, really build a decentralized socialist project. And then the, this final quote, I think, is just a great way to summarize and kind of wrap us up and leave us with with food for thought. The future needs to be constructed. It has been demolished by neoliberal capitalism and reduced to a cut price promise of greater inequality, conflict, and chaos. This collapse in the idea of the future is simply symptomatic of the regressive historical status of our age, rather than as cynics across the political spectrum would have us believe a sign of skeptical maturity. What accelerationism pushes forward towards is a future that is more modern, an alternative modernity that neoliberalism is inherently unable to generate. The future must be cracked open once again, un unfastening our horizons towards the universal possibilities of the outside. Which that sounds very oh yeah, Deleuzian. Yeah, as well. definitely. I mean, I think the whole language of outsideness. I mean, it's yeah, Land's Twitter handle, right? Uh, really speaks to the accelerationist project. It's you know positioned not towards the existing horizon of possibility, but looking forward to one that could be constructed or is, you know, maybe in Land's earlier works, you know, beyond our control. Right, and um, before we do close out the pod, do you have any uh, anything you want to plug? Social media, your your upcoming series, anything else? Yeah, so I'm on uh, Twitter at TechnoEcologic. Um, my series, Utopia TV, uh, I'm working on a 12-episode first season on May 1st. I'm planning on releasing hopefully one to four episodes, maybe more. We'll see. Um, I wanted to give a shout-out to my mom, whose <laughs> birthday is today. <laughs> Happy birthday, Ma. Um, and uh, yeah, so the I, I guess the first thing I'm working on for my series is a three-part, it's kind of the centerpiece 
series on uh, Deleuze and Guattari, Capitalism and Schizophrenia, through the lens of the Netflix series Maniac. I'm doing Nick Land through the lens of The Matrix, and then Mark Fisher through the lens of dystopian fiction, especially Cap, uh, Children of Men. Yeah. Nice. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Anytime, man. It's been a been a fun ride. Thanks for introducing me and to the readings and sharing these. But uh, this is going to be Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry signing off. Sweet, man. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity.